Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Uh, so, okay, so then you finish high school, you, you go to Yale, not as a drama student, but no. studying history and studying, languages. Yeah. Were you doing any kind of creative outlet things there? Mm-hmm. I and mean, if so, what? Yeah, I um, I had a I had a stretch in high school where I got very I got very uh, self conscious about anything to do with acting, partly just because I was small and I I remember having this terrified sensation that that girls from my school were going to see me in this song and dance thing that that the, you know. And I, I don't know why this paralyzing self-consciousness came in and I quit the whole thing. That'd be a good thing if they went and saw it. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, <laughs> I don't know why I had that. I, it was a, I went to a, a, a school that was a little tough. But, um, but my, mother was very, my mother was very upset. She, I mean, not upset at me, but I, I know she knew I loved it. And she was like, why, why are you quitting this? And I didn't want to talk about it and stuff. And then um, we went and uh, a school trip we had a school trip to the National Theater and Ian McKellen was doing um, uh, this one-man show that he wrote about his life in the theater. It was called Playing Shakespeare. And it was like, it was this weave he did of Shakespeare's life as an artist, his life, and the way that the text of Shakespeare's plays had informed his own understanding of a life in the theater. And it was magnificent, like really, really, the the um, most unusual thing and very personal. It was really like an actor's life, you know. Um, but he turned it into this great piece of theater, and um, he. I remember he did. He he asked for volunteers, and I went up um, with. I was about seventeen, and I went up. I went on stage and um, and a, with a bunch of other people, and he kind of came over and and you know he has you know has that whistle in his voice. And he, and he says, you know, everybody just on cue, slide down. And so um, we, uh, so he says this thing, and we all lay down. And then he did, um, he did the, uh, Macbeth's "Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow" on the battlefield with all the dead around him. And um, and I was I was lying on the stage at the National. I was looking. And he was about as close as me to you. And I watched him do this thing from literally like right under him. And it had a very profound effect on me. Not just the angle, like the. It was like. It was like it was a, um, I really, I went home, the whole ride home, I thought, I remember thinking to myself, this, this is, to, this is, you have to take this much more seriously. Like, it was very, very profound, because he made it seem like a, a life, you right. know? And, um, and uh, that was just before I went to college, and I think it had a pretty big effect on reigniting my, my, my interest in Okay, so hold up. So you guys have seen the famous video where like Bradley Cooper is in the audience at Inside the Actor's Studio and he asks Robert De Niro a question and then cut to all those years later they make two movies together. You do this, you're like laying on the stage with Ian McKellen and 10 years later you guys are both nominated for Best Actor at the Academy Awards. <laughs> and well, and the funny insane. thing was, the year, the year um, there was a year where it was the year that like Primal Fear and Larry Flint and those things came out and Ian had done this thing on um, 
a Rasputin. Remember he did a sure. film? Yeah. Uh, and he won a Golden Globe and yeah. so did you. Exactly. So I met him, I met him backstage and I never forgot. Um, he, he was wearing a, an Edward, a velvet suit, a brown velvet suit, and, um, which I was very impressed by. And he, and he, uh, we met and he said some very nice things and everything. And I said, you know, I, I told him, I told him that story. And he was very touched by it. Um, and I think uh, that that's it kind of bonded us in a nice way. Um, but then when I, so then I saw him at the luncheon. I, I would see him here and there, and he was always very, very sweet um, about my story and, and, and all of that effect he'd had. And um, he, <laughs> I remember going up to him and saying, can you believe it? I was like, this is the best thing ever. And he goes, oh, it's awful. It's awful. You know, I hate it. And I said, why? And he goes, he goes because I want it. I want it. And I'm not going to get it. <laughs> and and I, I, you know, we had a, a funny excuse. I, I um, yeah, it was... There's more to that story that I shouldn't tell. That's fine. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I am a very positive person. I, you will you'll be hard-pressed to find me saying something negative, especially in a public forum. But the fact that you were nominated for American History X, Ian McKellen for Gods and Monsters, and Nick Nolte for Affliction in the same year, not to mention Tom Hanks for Saving Private Ryan, and you guys lost to Roberto Benigni <laughs> is ridiculous. No, well, I'm going to counter that. I'm a big fan of Roberto Benigni. Like, okay. I, I love Roberto Benigni. So, I, and I, meeting him was like the prize that year. I, I had dinner with him, and I, oh, really? I think he's magnificent. Okay. I, I, and I love that film. So I was like... You were um, okay losing to that? I, I knew going in, like, I... I I took a pool. I was like, I got an 18-inch swastika on my chest, and no one expected me to be here in the first place. Um, what you know? What's I basically said to a, a circle of trusted friends, "What's the over/under?" And everybody was like, "Not a chance." Enough. So um, uh, I, uh, I, we, we all, we smoked a little something before that. Oh, nice! I had, a, I had a great time. So when he time. when he got up on the chairs, I you were it loving great. it. Okay, the only, but the only thing is, he stepped on Ian's ear <gasps> when he ran across the chairs, and that wasn't. A good move. No, probably um, not. But I also remember that was um, <laughs> the, best, the best thing that year was Tom Stoppard got a screenplay award and said, and, and when he said, he said, I feel like Roberto Benini on the inside. <laughs> so, so anyway, okay, so you. We're finished, digressing. I, no, this is good. I, we can jump around. I have, I've got all my notes here. So anyway, you, you, uh, fin yeah. you finish school in 91. What happens for those first three or four years after? college graduation? How are you well, spending your time? I did a lot of theater in, at school, too. I didn't study. I, I even took some classes and stuff. But the amazing thing about, you know, I'd gone to public school, and um, when I got this chance to go to Yale, the, the thing that was so incredible about it is how there was so much theater going on there. Mm -hmm. Not because there's the Yale Drama School and this unbelievable raft of productions. There's the Yale Rep. I remember seeing, you know, you could, you, literally, you could, one week, in one weekend, I was 19, you could see I was an undergraduate when I was 18 or 19. Paul Giamatti was a year or two ahead of me in school. And, and I remember going to see him in an undergraduate production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Whoa. And Paul looked the same as he looks now. He hasn't, everyone else's age, Paul has just aged into the way he looked when he was 20. Got it. And I remember, I remember thinking, so this is like some 50-year-old guy who's come back to school to go to college. Like, he's amazing. He's just amazing. But I remember seeing that, and then the same weekend I saw um, at the Yale Rep, Fran McDormand and David Strathairn were doing Moon for the Misbegotten. 
And uh, and then I saw uh, Henry V and Leah was played Clarence. Leah Schreiber was Clarence. He was at the drama school. It was like there was so much going on there, um, and you could do plays. I did plays, um, you know, all the time. Uh, I did Chekhov plays and and Shakespeare plays and had had a ball. Just you know, but you didn't have to be. Uh, um, you didn't have to have a. You know, you didn't have to be getting a degree in theater there. It was it was wonderful. And then afterwards, you went to Japan for a while. No, that was that was that was just a a, a summer and part of a semester I spent while I was in school. Got it. I lived over there. So you so after finishing at Yale, you went to New York and looking for work as a as a working actor at that point. No, I I um I actually went and worked in I worked in affordable housing. I worked um I I did. Uh, it's complicated. I was, we were, we were. My grandfather, who uh, had a big impact on me making this film, because he he was an urban developer who was kind of the anti Robert Moses. And in fact, many of Willem Dafoe's lines in the film are are things my grandfather said in speeches oh, wow. about about service and the idea of caring for people. And um, uh, and the first job I had was working for this organization he built that that did very innovative tax credit finance on affordable housing. And, and my job was actually going all over in, in New York City uh, to every borough interviewing people who had gotten out of situations of dislocation and into a stable, affordable home. And it was the most amazing um, way to move to New York City and get this like um, exposure to the breadth of the city and people's experiences, and it and it was the period in which I got really interested in sort of the dark, the dark history of New York's, uh, you know, New York's dirty secret of the of the mid century was was in many ways how the poverty traps that we deal with today, many of the modern problems that we still deal with in New York were a function of mm. of things done by design in the fifties. Um, mm. And it's uh, if if LA's if LA's kind of original sin is that it stole all its water and water corruption. In many ways, New York's is the way that discrimination was really baked into the city of the inf the, the infrastructure of the city as it was converted from a nineteenth century city to a twentieth century city. And I was I was but in that period working in housing, I got I got actually pretty hooked on the things that I finally got into this film. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. So how long did that last before you then made the pivot? I was working, I was, I, you know, I would get backstage and I was taking classes. Um, I was moonlighting in the theater and, um, and even when I was doing that work, I was, um, I got, you know, I was, I did a, I, I would audition, you know, for things out of backstage. I auditioned for Yale Drama School. I didn't get in. I auditioned for Juilliard. I didn't get in. I, so I was interested, but in a weird way, I think I didn't get into those places because they were hard to get into. But I also think I was, I, I looking back, I, I bet it emanated off me that I was not all the way in. You know uh, what I mean? Uh. And I, um, I, I kind of found my way to some really good teachers. Um, one in particular, and uh, and was doing that, and then I got into some you know off off plays, um, waiting for Lefty, Clifford Odets, waiting for Lefty. I did um, Brian Friel's Lovers, oh. uh, Shanley's Italian American Reconciliation. I was I was I was doing a lot of theater, um, and I got um, 
and, and out of that, Edward Albee saw me in one of the plays I did, and, and um, that, that's what led to getting an audition for the Signature Theater, and that's how I, I ended up starting to do kind of work that was getting a little more, um, I don't know, of a profile to it or something like that. But still, as I understand it, you had to attend an <clears throat> open call for Primal Fear. Yeah, but everybody, everybody did. I mean, okay. um, um, all, like every one of my, we all did. Like, um, I mean, honestly, I mean, I've laughed at Sam Rockwell, Bobby Cannavale, Mark Ruffalo. Leo? Yeah, but no, but Leo, Leo was a, a star. He was, you know, a fame. He was like a really, he was a star already. And right, he, oh, um, I see what you're saying. He, 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 I think the, the line I've heard is that they offered that part to Leo and he, he passed on it. Um, I think Christian Bale was kind of being talked about. Stephen Dorff, I think. Was I don't know any of it. I, I don't know any. I, I was. I was like, L.A. was Mars to me at that time. <laughs> I, I had never even been to L.A. So, um, but but everyone, every every actor I knew, everyone I was coming up with and was friends with in New York, in the theater scene, who wasn't, you know, in a graduate school like Sam and Bobby and Phil, Phil Hoffman and. Mark Ruffalo, every, every and a million others. Everybody I knew knew about that part, and it was kind of one of those things where you were like, you thought you had an ace up your sleeve, and then you realized everyone had the same ace <laughs> up their sleeve. Like you were like, yeah, I got this audition, and, and it was like, oh, you did? Oh, fuck, everybody. It's like everybody got that audition. Like, um, so it wasn't. It was like they okay. saw they, Deb Aquila, who was the casting director at Paramount. Um, got Greg Hoblet to let her really go around Chicago and I don't know London and New York and 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 really um do a, a old school search you know but my understanding which I think is really interesting for a room full of actors is that you went into this audition and whereas it was written that the character was sitting in a chair you asked to do it sitting on the floor in the corner of right. the room and I think that's interesting because my understanding is that it, it was m one of several ways that it kind of set you apart from a lot of the other I think people. What sometimes these things, like, um, they get a life in them that was, that it's, it even happened at the time. By the time I came out and did the screen test, I was, like, going around in L.A. I didn't know where I was. I so didn't know where I was out here that I was at the Third Street Promenade. And they had me staying at the Bella, the, the, it's the, you know, across from the Whiskey A Go Go. Oh. And I was on the Third Street Promenade, and I saw these buildings in the distance, and I was like, I'm just going to walk to the hotel. And, and I was like, <laughs> like, like four hours later, I hit the, I hit the Brentwood, uh, you know, oh, mall, no. and I was like, this something's wrong here. Um, but I, uh, I, um, I think that. Uh, that even like my screen test people were, I it was like the it was like the Nirvana demo tape it was like people were telling me oh I saw that and I was like how the fuck did you get a hold of my like screen test but but the things that were true but it wasn't it wasn't just that the thing is I had auditioned for Deb's Deb and her partner when they were big indie casting directors in New York like they she did everything like sex size and videotape and last exit to Brooklyn and so she she was no if you were into you know, indie film and stuff. Deb, Deb was kind of like one of the ones you wanted to get in on. And sometime I had I had auditioned. Her partner had said to her like, hey, "We should have him back." And then I remember saying a thing I would do a lot is if I felt if I felt an audition had gone even even 
a little bit well, I would say, hey, can I, could I ask you, um, even if this doesn't work out, I'd love to be a reader, you know? And um, I would always ask casting directors if I got a positive vibe off them, will you please call me if you ever need a reader, happy to work for free, blah, blah, blah. Oh. And I did that all the time. Oh. I, would, I would work, you know, as the right. reader. And I did that for Deb's partner once or twice. And I think even doing that, it kind of tuned her in a little bit more, um, uh, you know, to me. So sure. I, I didn't go in blind. I did, um, there's a funny story. I don't, I don't belabor it, but I, I knew Connie, Connie Britton and I were friends um, in that period. And she, she, I ran into her on the street and she was like going to bail on an audition. And I told her like, what's it for? And she was like, it's some film in backstage. And I was like, well, you should just go. And I pushed her. So she went. Then I see her later and she was like, oh, I got that, that little film, but I'm not going to do it. It's like 10 weekends in a row at this kid's house on Long Island. And I was like, Connie, like, you, you get it. You've never done a film. Like, do the film, you know? She's like, okay, okay. And then, so that, that was the Brothers McMullen. Unbelievable. It turned out to be the Brothers McMullen. And then she went out. She went to Sundance. It was a big deal. She went to L.A. She got an agent. And, um, she, and then she went in to read for Deb for the more the more tyranny part in Primal Fear, and she and she went out of that audition and she called me from the Paramount lot and she said, she goes, I just read for something. She goes, I'm not going to get it, but there's a part, and they're going to look. at She goes, I have the creepiest feeling. Like you have to read for this part. Wow. It, it's like it's you. And she goes, I'm going to pay you back right now. You should get it. You should fax Deb Aquila fax. And I and I did. <laughs> I fa I wrote a fax to Deb's partner and just said, if you're coming through New York, can I see this and you know, blah, blah, blah. So that, that's how that happened. Did you, I mean, the, the performance in Primal Fear was so spectacular. It was such a great debut for those of us who had, hadn't seen you on stage. I just remember I was working at Entertainment Weekly at the time. We went to see the movie. And we were like, holy shit, this was amazing. Were you, did you know that you were kind of filing, firing on all cylinders? Did, were you surprised by the acclaim? How did it strike um, you? It was, it's, I mean, that whole thing, it just, it, 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 it like unfolded in slow motion. Um, the, because the, in the, I used to look at things like that, talking about auditioning, it's just like, well, I'm not going to get it, but it'll be a good shot to try something a little weird, you know, mm. or just see what I knew. And, and I, I used to always go into auditions and kind of um, say, I, I would. I hate the thing of chit chat before you read. I think it's, it's it's like introducing your own film. It's a disaster. It's it's like, it's like you're 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 atomizing everything you're about to try to do. It's like, hey, let's meet each other, and then now I'm going to go put on a Kentucky accent right. and pretend. You know, it's like why why would I why why does this help? Um, so I would I would always kind of subtly in a way say to whoever was it's like, can we just can we talk after? You know, can we just come and do the thing? And usually people like, you know, like that. And that's what I did with Deb, is I, I just asked the assistant, can I just be in the room, and can she come in, can we just start? You know, and, um, and that's, that's, what we, that's, that's, why, that's what Deb sometimes later talked about was, because Deb didn't use readers, she's a really good actor, so she would read the scenes with you, which I thought was cool, and... Um, and, and I think I did do that. I think I, I sat over in the corner, so when she came in, she kind of had to find me in the corner of the prison cell or whatever, and we did those things. And, um, and then, and I felt 
it had an impact on her. And I think the thing on that was that it didn't, the part was written, it evolved when we made the film a lot. It didn't have a stutter, it didn't have these things. And I remember thinking like, this just needs, this needs a hook, this needs, this needs an, um, if this is gonna work, there's, there's gotta be something that, that kind of, you know, cons this, this sharp lawyer fast. And it seemed to me like that the vulnerability that, you know, the way you empathize with someone who has a stutter, stutter, a stutter creates instant empathy. Sure. And so I thought it was a good, a good way to do without presuming to mess with the script, just find, put something in it that wasn't there. And I think that may have been part of it. That was obviously working. And so I kept, I kept working on it and leaning into it. And by the time we got into doing it, it was almost like the, the, um, it had become part of the DNA of it before we even made the film. Um, and I think it was a great experience overall. Uh, Richard Gere was amazing to me. He was, he was a very, very generous ally in helping me go through a first film experience. Everybody on that was, it was, it was great. And you know, it was really, I was really, Michael Chapman, like, who shot Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and was the DP and I was, I was quite nervous about that. Um, but he, um, uh, when we did it, it was, I don't want to say it was a mess, but it was, it was, no, no one knew what the ending was supposed to be and they, it wasn't decided, is, is it a con or is it things? And there was the studio was pressuring people to have it be that Richard gets over on, that Richard wins in the end. And, and to his huge credit, he was like, no, 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 no. He's like, it's a con, I don't get, it's a body blow, the last frame is me with my shoulder sagging, that's why it works. You know, he was, he was very unprotective of the idea of like a heroic ending for him. Love that. Um, yeah, and, and, but when we shot, we kind of improvised that whole thing that became the ending that really worked. And I remember a lot of people going like, I, I heard crew guys going, we'll be back to be redoing this, you know what I mean? Like, you were sort of like, oh shit, like, you know, there were, there were and yeah, some people, it wasn't like, but then there was Hawk Koch, who was the producer of that film, head of the Academy a while back. I remember seeing Hawk in the corner kind of giving me this look like, like, don't listen to any of that, that was great. Like that, that really worked. And, um, and it was kind of like, okay, but the thing is, it's not like Birdman. I mean, honestly, I, it was a great experience and I felt great about having had the chance, but it wasn't like the film was a thriller with a twist at the end. Right. And it was sort of like, in the back of my mind, I was like, I better hold on to my per diem because <laughs> this, this could just not work at all. It, right. could, be, it could be real turgid <laughs> melodrama that, that, that doesn't work. And, um, and so I, didn't, I, I wasn't like, People were nattering in a way, but I, I was definitely not counting my chickens like about that film. And in fact, I, I, I got, I was very excited because I got to, sh I got in a Woody Allen film, I got in Everyone Says I Love You, and, and even more significantly to me, I got to work with Emilio Foreman. I knew that was coming. Uh, I, before Primal Fear came out, we started right. shooting Larry Flint. And he, um, he was, I mean, Woody was, very formative for me, but Milos was like one of my idols. I, I really, um, his films had a huge effect on me. And, um, and I, I really 
was, I was just completely um, uh, immersed in, not just in doing the film, but in hanging at his shoulder and watching him make a film. Like, and um, some tough things were going on in my life. My mother was ill. And so I really was like living this life between going home, um, excuse me, and, um, and really hunkered down in this thing with Milos, who was involving me at a lot of levels of it. He, he kind of really engaged, involved me in the script and involved me in the editing. And he, and it was like such a, a tutelage, a real mentorship for me that I know that this sounds like BS, but it really is the way it went for me. We were in Memphis, we were doing these things, and Primal Fear came out while we were doing it. And I really did have this sensation of kind of like, it was like something in me was like, this is, I, I was resistant to, it was exciting, but I kind of was like, did it do okay? And people were like, it did great. I was like, great. And I went back to work. Um, because, because I felt like, I felt like, this opportunity of working with Milos was like, it was almost like a new pinnacle, you know? Yeah. And it wasn't that I it was, it took that for granted, but it felt, um, it felt like, I think I knew it was gonna, there was gonna be a lot of noise, and in, in a weird way, I think consciously and unconsciously, because of the things that were going on in my, my life, um, you know, th that were tough, the, the, I knew that that kind of noise was going to be very bad for me right then, and that the best thing was just to work, was just to keep working. And um, and literally, I had seen all of I, my my parents took me to Amadeus, wow. and and um, I remember the theater we saw it in. I remember how old I was, and and I was talking to my mother like almost every day while I was making Larry Flint, and she wanted to hear about it and dissect it and ask what he was like and all these things. And it just felt like in that period I was like just just keep your head in, in these things that matter. And while she was alive, I wanted her to like engage, be engaged in the create, you know, what the pleasure of the creative process and. Um, I'm happy she got to experience at least the beginning yeah. of this part of your life and your career. Yeah. yeah. When you think back to everyone says I love you and singing my baby just cares for me and doing like the dancing and all of that. Is that terrifying? Was it super fun? What, what was your mindset on that filming? Um, I was, I was, uh, I was thrilled. I was fascinated to, I was fascinated to watch him do his thing. Uh, because as, just as a student of film, it's like, how does he do these things? Mm. It was really interesting. Um, I was I was completely flummoxed by the musical component of it. That was like they didn't tell us it was a musical. What? So the, the everyone who got in it was like, you know, um, I did an audition. They had me come back. They I was waiting in the lobby. They came out and said, so yeah, he, so he wants you to do it. So it'll be September. And I was like, wait, wait, what did you say? You know, and they were like, he wants you to do it. And I said, well, can I go back in and say thanks, you know? And, uh, you know, and, um, and I, I came back in. I said, I, I just want to say I'm so, I can't believe it. I'm so, so thrilled. And he goes, well, you know, it's going to be terrific, you know? And I, and I, and I, said, uh, I said, well, um, you know, thanks so much. And he goes, no, it'll be great. And I'm walking out and he goes, he goes hey, um, you know, just you sing it all. 
And I, and I said, what? And I said, uh, you know, okay. And he, you're going to get your gun. Yeah, and he was like, he, was like uh, he, he goes, no, it's just something I'm playing with. And then, uh, and then like months late, a couple months later, I, I get this thing saying, you should go in and work with Dick Hyman, the, uh, his great arranger and his vocal coach. And I was like, what is going on? You know? <laughs> and um, I said to my mother, I was like, oh my God. I was like, I get, I get a Woody Allen movie and it's a musical. Like, you know, um, but it was fun. It turned That's out to be so very fun. crazy. I had no idea that you didn't know that. Okay, um, so this leads into the first question. I, I'm going to intersperse a couple of your guys' questions. I hope I'm reading your name right. Is it Yeska? Yeah? How's it going? So his question is, how did you get into character uh, for American History X, which is the next movie I want to talk about? Um... It was, the, the whole, that film benefited in a lot of ways from um, being, you know, we made that film for three million bucks, I think. Um, it was the total budget on it. We did it really fast. Um, David McKenna and I, who wrote, it was, he wrote the script. We, we worked very intensively together for this period of like six months before it, like trying to sort of take this amazing idea, the script he'd had in almost like, Pare it down and imagine it as a Shakespearean tragedy. Mm. And by the time that that I know it, this is an actor's room, so this is this is the right room to talk about this. But I I think that people people have a tendency to in our trade to say like there's kind of a ro a romantic uh, value placed on like ide ideas like instinctual or visceral or about acting, and I think that that's true. But the, the, I always think it's nuts that, like the notion that any of the very best actors aren't analytical and cerebral first is the biggest load of crap. And it does a disservice, I think, when people talk about the method and they don't know what they're talking about and they talk about this, what, they, what they're really doing is inadvertently they're encouraging actors to not do their fucking homework. and and. I've worked, I've done two films with Robert De Niro. I know Daniel Day-Lewis, I know Sean Penn, all the people you say like, people talk about as the American History X, it's like, those people I guarantee you every single time, they're, the, they're like investigative reporters. It all starts analytically. It all starts from a cerebral, dramaturgical point of view. What's the piece? How does the piece function? What's the style? How does the role fit within the style? What type of person is it? There's nothing instinctual about it in, in the early phases. It's it's dramaturgical work, it's literary work, it's, it's style work, it's um, theme work, it's like, it's, it's all that work before, to me, before you can even begin to go, all right, what's the skin, what's the, what's the body, what's the voice, what's the, what's the instrument of the whole thing, and what, how do I get it into the musculature? And in that case, that time with David, that I spent, we talked, really talking about it, thinking about it from the point of view of Othello's about jealousy, Macbeth's mm. about pride and ambition. This is about rage. We're gonna strip away everything in this, the drug subplot, all this bullshit. We're gonna strip it down and make it, this is about a person who destroys himself, mm. all of his potential because of anger. And anything else is peripheral. And the more we got down into that and the more we started realizing we don't need that, we don't need that and we need more in the prison. We need, we need to see what happens to him more. That is the work. Mm. 
that's that's like for me that was the work that was that was the getting ready like that was the like absorbing what the hell is this really all about because then you can start to go all right well you know what has he done to himself physically that is the is the is the physical echo of these things how does he talk how does he things what's his relation to things and get in and and actually just start to do the work of physicalizing it and all these things but 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 the accelerant you know the clarity and the accelerant for me that comes from the the analytical work before is i the, the notion that you would what I don't like about the ro the over romanticization of like some idea of the method or whatever is that it kind of says it kind of suggests something that I think is really really weak sauce, which is show up and wing it. You know what I mean? Like like get in there and just feel it. Mm. And I and I don't I don't go for that. And in fact, when I cast when I cast Motherless Brooklyn, which is jumping away, but we had to make this this is a big movie. We had to make it in forty six days, um, and. Uh, and I didn't cast a single actor in that movie who wasn't uh, uh, someone with deep theater experience because I couldn't have needy actors on that film. I couldn't have anyone who hadn't had the experience of having primary responsibility for the text. And by that I mean has been on stage and had the experience of saying that the ball is in my hand and I am carrying it from moment one to moment end. I know how to synthesize the totality of the piece do the work ahead of time and be ready on stage to deliver the whole thing because I couldn't give people on this film more than two or three takes. Um, there was just no way to do it. And, and I had to have people who had that kind of command of text. And, and I think um, nobody on Motherless Brooklyn, it's probably, I think it's one of the best ensemble casts I've ever worked in or with as an actor or anything. <laughs> Nobody on that film was in anything even approaching a method mode. Everybody was in there working as a tradecraft pro, nimbly, prepared, ready, and not asking for um, a, a precious environment of concentration because I couldn't give it to them. I couldn't give it to them. Um, and, 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 uh, and in fact, I was... The, the disruptive force because you work Boston, together right. to the degree actors can. What, what do we all do? We, we blow up a bubble of suspension of, of all of the, what's going on around you, especially on films. You help each other push all that away and within your little thing, pretend it's real and be in it. And when one of you is ping-ponging out of it, you're the, you're, you're the one messing it up. You know what I mean? And I, I couldn't have actors who, who were going to be like, you know, uh, you know, snowflakes right. ab about, <laughs> about that. Uh, uh, and I think that that, I think it's important to say that because I think it's, it's like not everything, not every approach serves every, the demands of every piece mm. or every type of work. And I think, um, there's times you need you need you know per, pure professionalism like a violinist they know they know how to play the instrument you know let me quiz you about a couple other ones before we get into more of a conversation about motherless brooklyn <clears throat> um fight club the the lore on that film is that 
the executives weren't sure about it, you know, all the way through. Is is it too dark? Do we need to change, you know, how we're selling it? What are your recollections of that experience and and how that one felt? Because it, I mean, twenty years later, it's so iconic. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the inside baseball of like what's what terrifies studio people. I think I think that's almost like a, a irrelevant kind. Of, that that to me. Again, from a work point of view, it was it was wonderful. It was beautiful. It was like um, there was an enormous amount of humor on it. Um, there was a, a strong sensibility of irreverence and and a desire to, I think, stick a fork into the the foibles. This the you know. The, mo- the existential moment we were feeling like we're all living in right now, mm. and it was fun. It was fun. It was there was a there was a troublemaking, mischievous sensibility on the whole thing, and um, and it was great people, funny people. Like Helena is really funny. Brad <laughs> is really funny. Fincher's really funny. And my abiding memory of the whole thing was a lot of a lot of laughter, a lot of hard work, a lot of takes. Oh yeah, right. Like, I mean, and that, thank God I worked with him before he went digital. I, I can't even. I, I mean, at least there was a. At least he could run out of film when right, we right. were working. Um, but I. But but by the way, um, I'm glad you said that because that that too. There's there's no. You can't. You can't be a method actor with Fincher. There's no way. He'll burn you out. He'll he'll right. he'll take you into Dada. He'll take you into a place where you're you're beyond self, beyond beyond connection. Where and when I say the the concert violinist, you you he even if you go, wow, he's never happy till twenty. I'll just save it until twenty. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna bring the good stuff between twenty and twenty-five, and on forty-five. You start going, oh my God, he's going to use these ones, you know, and I and you're like, I can't feel the front of my face, I can't hear my own voice. You're in Saving Private Ryan mode. Everything's gone silent. You don't know, you don't know what you're saying, and um, and it forces you to get to a very interesting place, which is, this is not about, this is not about any kind of like connectedness that happened like. Hours ago, and and he was and he was not doing anything other than looking at whether the Steadicam bumped. You know what I mean? Um, and and you just go, I better find a gear to be in on this, or I'm not going to survive it. And um, and what's really interesting to me is it puts you in a in a you, you get into a technical craft place where you go, we're going to work together to find it. There's a lot of them. There's no rehearsal, so it's like you almost get to this place where you're like, okay, with this director. The first ten to twenty actually is rehearsal, and and there's where you know we'll, we'll block things, but this is actually really finding it, and he's okay with that, and so we can we can explore, we can you know f around, try some weird stuff, things, and and then there's going to be this zone where maybe it'll happen, but you kind of just with David have to get into a place of you can't be precious and you can't look for. Um, emotional connectedness to anything. You have to, you have to work like a dancer, um, and and trust trust that you've that all the time spent together is creating a stylistic like synergy that you have gotten into each other's vibe, mm-hmm. and that you're that that um, 
that you can trust when it, you can trust that he's a great choreographer and that he's gonna, he's gonna let you know when, when the moves of you and this other thing came together. And he's a master of that, a master of the dance between camera and, and, and actors, Clearly. right? And I think um, that, that, was, that was interesting, it was valuable. He also said, I mean, again, the antithesis of like what everybody thinks is like, you know, the kinds of conversations that go on with directors and actors. The, the best, he gave me one of the best notes I've ever gotten as an actor. Probably in the first seven or eight days, we were doing a lot of stuff. And I did something where it was always with him like, are we being very tongue-in-cheek here and very funny? Or are we leaning a little on the darker side of it? Mm. You know, it was pretty much that kind of a play. And I did something leaning. I think I was in my underwear running. And I, I think I did a very, like, you know, like, like. A flourish. Yeah, a little bit of a flourish or something. And he kind of came over to me. He, go, he goes, a little less Jerry, a little more Dean. Oh. And I was like. That's, I was like, that's it. I was like, that's this whole film. And I, I kind of said, like, we were laughing. I was like, I got you. But later I said, you know something? That's pretty much it. The whole t I said, all you got to do is you, you just tell me, Jerry or Dean, on this film, the rest of this. And, and we know where to go. You that's know what great. I mean? It was, it was um, sometimes it can be simple like that. What was your experience with your director the following year on uh, Keeping the Faith? <laughs> um, it was him. It was I, uh, I, 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 you know. When I look back on that, it was, um, it was, uh, those, were, those were the fat days. <laughs> I had more time and more money to make a rabbi priest joke into a romantic comedy <laughs> than I had to make like an epic New York noir. Um, it was just so different, um, so luxurious, um, and, uh, and also, and, and super fun, super fun, light, and Ben is, ben is himself a director who's an actor, so you, you couldn't have had a more, a, a dance partner who was more facile, more willing, while the tape's rolling, let's, let's go back, let's just go back to there and pick it up again and go, and oh, nice. just very, very old school, um, old, old school, uh, um, Lemon Mathau patter, looking for, looking for the rapatata of it all. Did, Disney come to you and say, would you like to direct this? Or no. did you, how did it all? No, we, uh, my partner Stuart wrote that script and we set it up and originally we were gonna do it in one studio and it got put in turn around and we, it, it, it was one of those things. It, it fell, it fell, it, the way it, way it all landed was great, super fun. Um, uh, and um, it was, it, Fincher said to me, it, we were making Fight Club while we were setting it up and I was asking him about certain things and I, Stuart and I thought maybe we'd just like do this because why do we, why sit over someone else's shoulder and 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 bug them because they're not getting your jokes or whatever and so he, but I said something to Fincher like like do you think it's a this is kind of light and he was like he goes the first one just just do something you don't care about he goes don't do anything you care about on your first one and it's not that I didn't care about it but he was like he goes Alien Three was not my heart's desire he's like but it gets you. It gets one under your belt and it gets your things and that and it it was that way for me it, it was it was fun and I really liked what it was about we had a great time but it wasn't um, it was in a way getting to go through the exercise of making one right well that leads into a question from Casway Blackwell who asked it must be hard to be on camera and direct at the same time how do you deal with it um, it 
there are mo it really it's very yin yang. There's things I absolutely love about it, and there's things I really hate about it. Um, it it on Motherless Brooklyn because the character, uh, if anyone has it had, the character has Tourette syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder. It's a very chaotic, very spontaneous kind of a um, uh, characterization, and it was tricky in a funny way on that, because of the time constraints, which were very real, mm. I actually could not, the director, me, the producer, I could not afford actor Edward needing a lot of time. And, I, and in a weird way, the fact that I knew I was gonna cut it and shape it, I felt, very, you know, I, I trust myself, so I wasn't, I wasn't precious. I was free to experiment and to very quickly bracket the performance and do one at two, do one at four, do one at eight, and do one redlined, you know, crazy. Give myself a lot of raw material, which was very much, by the way, a Milos Forman wisdom to me. He was, he, Milos told me once like, that making films is all about casting and editing, and that in between, all you're doing is gathering raw clay. And, and if, you've, if your actors are right and you're a good editor, you get yourself everything you can get yourself, and it's it was and it helped me on on this because it let me as an actor serve myself in an uninhibited way. I had less self consciousness, less protectiveness about doing something that I later would go, "Oh, I hope he doesn't use that," you know. Um, and I and I and it did liberate me to uh, to work in a somewhat more. Um, Freely experimental way without without too much self consciousness. That's good. What's what's not so great is um, just all the all the headspace that you try to all the all the space you try to create for yourself as an actor to get out of your head and into the muscle memory mm -hmm. um, goes away. It gets just completely eaten by the necessary work directing and. Um, and vice versa, because you 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 lose all of your time as a director, literally to the makeup chair and the and the you know um, it's that that part of it is is tough. But you know, I again, this is a room of actors. I think it's a great thing to do. It's a great um, there's such an amazing tradition in American film of actors. Uh, make you know making films. We all come up on those films from from Citizen Kane, the great one. To, but you know, like Do the Right Thing had a big impact on me. It was one of the more formative films of my life. Um, Reds uh, had that effect on me. Um, Robert Redford's films, uh, you know, and 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 when you see these things done, um, and and sometimes I think. Actors, if they've been in, if they've, you know, if they, sometimes actors have a sense of their own sweet spot, their own thing, and sometimes it's um, something very special can emerge out of uh, out of somebody having a deep feeling for something like Dances with Wolves, you know, like a, a, a beautiful film. Um, I think Costner absolutely understanding where he is where he was 
best. You know, he he knew what that was about for him, mm. and it comes through. You know, it it, it comes through, and I re- I love that. I I always I always felt like whatever the whatever is difficult about um, it, it it's worth it's worth it. Um, it's worth trying to find those things and take a swing because we we exist in the nether world of, um, I, I always think, I always hated, even when I was in my, you know, first in New York, I hate, I hate having the lack of autonomy that actors have. I hate that we wait on other people. It's, there's beautiful things about what we get to do, but waiting on other people to give us a gig sucks, <laughs> like, eternally. It will never <laughs> not suck. It has always sucked. It will never not suck. And, and it, um, and inevitably, I just think that it's part of the existential, the existential um, burden of actors is at some point, you, you just gotta make the work you wanna make. You, you, you gotta make your own work. You gotta um, be part of making the work. Um, it's what I loved about um, Shakespeare in Love, truly loved about that film is the whole idea of, of actors, the, the, the minstrel tradition Put it all in a wagon. Go to town. Set up the fucking set. Put on the costume. Do your own makeup. You know, wow. it's like that. That um, that we, you know, we've been boxed into separated unions and all these things. But the truth is, I think, in in, it's just none of us at any phase are lucky. I mean, there's the, the so few are lucky enough to like just get to like read one thing, read another. Thing. I'll do this. I won't do this. I won't. Do this. That's just not the condition of the tribe it's the it's always and i think the to some degree we've got to make our own way and make our own make our own opportunities for work i like this question from marco para who says what advice do you give to actors who are serious about wanting to make films as well i mean how did you study the directors that you like to make sure that you were picking stuff up without distracting from the work that you were brought there to do um well, I think I think literacy is important. I, I mm. when my friend used to run the acting program at Juilliard, I'd go up and talk to the kids there, and it's like, it's an extension of the same conversation. You 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 have to be literate. You have to be um, you have to be well read. You have to read plays. You have to watch films. You have to um, understand. I think one of the best pieces of advice a teacher ever gave me was, you got to understand style in the sense that like. The Cohen brothers demand a very different sort of work than um, Paul Thomas Anderson does. Maybe you know what I mean. It's like, like there is style, and if you're doing the Hudsucker proxy and you're bringing like a low key banal like naturalism, you're out. You know what I mean? Like you're gone. Right. Like you you need you need conversancy with the filmmakers you hope to work with, right? And and so um, I think that I think. Literacy is important, and I think looking at, you know, in a funny way, uh, I mean, this kind of stuff is great. I I always used to look for stuff like this. There was um, there you know those cahiers de cinéma I used to sure. love, you know, or projections. There was that that series of books and or somebody on somebody, you know, mm-hmm. like the everything about film process I used to devour. Um, there's also Turner Classic Movies. Turner Classic pretty Movies. Good, pretty good channel. I agree. No, by the way, right. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that the um, that we we have a rich. We're in a rich moment of uh, access to. I remember in, having to chase down tapes of the old RSC. There was a um, the great RSC director John Barton, 
and Tre- and then and Trevor Nunn, they did this thing, um, this series on the at, uh, in the BBC called uh, called Acting Shakespeare, and it was like all the best Shakespearean actors out of um, in England doing these filmed working sessions. If you can ever find them, they are they are to this day amazing. Wow. Um, they're amazing. It's like Patrick Stewart and David Suchet and Ian McKellen and Lisa Harrow and Sh- Sh- um, Sinead Cusack and all these great actors dissecting how they break down Shakespeare's texts and all these things. It's amazing. Um, but I think uh, I think on a on a technical level, when you go, I think anyone would tell you that if you're going to direct a movie or, or and act in it. You got to triple the preparation time. Like if someone tells you like prep is ten weeks, you go no, it's not. It's twenty. Like it's it's and if you have to do that unofficially, off the books, because um, and and you got to carve your time as an actor. The guy, not ever. I don't know who's seen the film, but the guy who plays the mayor, yeah, in the film, we we did plays together at the 29th Street Rep in New York um, when I was like 24, and he's a terrific actor. Teaches acting. Uh, his name's Peter Lewis, and and he was my rehearsal partner. So like long before prep started, I I would work. He would play all the other parts, and I would work on the scenes with him because I knew I wasn't going to have time. Once scouts started, te- you know, like the Alfred Hitchcock line that um, directing is getting pecked to death by a thousand pigeons is <laughs> is I really like. It's very true, and the pi- and you and it's you, the pigeons are the ones that make you look great. Right. But you, but they do have a lot of questions, and um, and and it's gonna and it's gonna eat your if you're gonna act in something, your prep time is gonna go like, like, down the hole. Now, I wonder what came first, that line from Hitchcock or the birds? Yeah, uh, they, they are related. Maybe it was his revenge. It was like, like the movie was his revenge. Uh, any instant recollections of working with Marlon Brando on the score? Um, yeah, sure. I mean. It's funny you say that um, because uh, I was I was having a conversation about him and that not that long ago, and that was got me thinking about it, and I hadn't in a while. And there was like I was I remember feeling a little dismayed um, because I felt and this is not a negative on anybody. Because when you're making a film, like as we all know, there's all kinds of pressures on different people, and they have their own things going on. But I felt that I felt that some of what was going on for the director of the film that was making that was it was it was putting him in a slightly tight place. He he had a notion he had a notion that he wanted the vibe between these three actors. He wanted it to conform. To a videotape that he had in his head, and I thought what was a shame was that Marlon, Marlon was doing really, really cool, funny, um, very tender stuff. He he was putting a little bit of a Truman Capote spin, a a, a very distinctly closeted homosexual kind of a, a love mm. between his character and Bob's character. There was a there was more than a a paternal thing going on, which is in the script, which I'd been—I got hired on that. I did a punch up for the studio, all these things. So I, I helped actually like design the vibe between our characters because it had—it was more of a caper film. Yeah. And once it was like me and De Niro, and 
Brando, it was like, it, it was gonna like, it was gonna be something else. It was not gonna be tongue in cheek. And, and we decided to like play it almost like a generational thing. A young Turk, like a, a stone cold, you know, pro, and then the veteran, right? Who's gotten a little sloppy, right? right. And it fit us. And we dialed it in that way. But, but Marlon did that thing that he always did. If you look at his work, he always has the great, the great, the great misperception of Marlon Brando is that he was this masculine icon, which he was. But it's 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 the way Marlon looked from streetcar on. Reflections in a golden eye. I mean, there's reflections like... in a golden eye. Even Terry Malloy. The thing that makes Marlon Brando great is his sensitivity. He has a he has a very, a very wounded sensitivity. I don't want to say a femininity because that's not quite right. But he has a there's a there's a softness, uh, and he looks like a Roman. You know, he looks like he. It's it's the it's the juxtaposition of the way he looks with what is actually this very childlike kind of softness and sensitivity. And that scene with Eva Marie Saint, the famous one with the glove, um, and, the, and with Rod Steiger in the car, and all those things, it's woundedness. It's not, it's not Terry Malloy the fighter, it's the guy going, I needed you looking out for me. And, and to, with her saying, don't say that, don't say that about me, you know what I mean? It's like, He's in pain, and um, and I think that came through so much of his stuff. Anyway, we're doing this thing, and I was watching him, and people were making a lot of noise about Marlon was using. He was one of the first people to use an earwig, right? And they were going blah, blah. Oh, he's using an earwig. He's he's phoning it in, and I was like, the guy is 82 years old, and he was doing it in a very canny way because he would have his. She was reading the lines. He would do like two or three takes, and yeah, there'd be like a funny little pause while he got it. But he was a master. He 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 delivered a line more fluidly than like most people on their best day. And and after two or three, he would go, I, uh, you know, I I got it. Uh, it just helped him find it a little faster. He was old, and it was a memory thing. And he would very quickly let it go. And he was doing this this. He was. I started realizing he's playing this as. He's playing this as a long time unrequited love, mm. and it was really interesting. Really, it made it it made it um, more tragic, and and there was an impulse to cr to crush that right out. And I could feel him go through this moment where he was sort of like, "Here we go. Like now, now it's going to become like Marlon's the difficult one." And it just wasn't the case. Um, I th I thought it was his last film, and I thought it was. Uh, I loved watching him um, do that thing. He he was uh, he was very. I mean, it's ridiculous to say he was special. But he, even when long past, when I think people were thinking, oh, he he doesn't care about it anymore. He doesn't. Even, but he he had a, just an intuitive. He he had a truly intuitive sensibility for I think human sensitivity. Mm. A couple last questions about Motherless Brooklyn before we use up our time here. I'm fascinated by the character of Lionel Estrog because occasionally you, you've seen someone who has Tourette's syndrome on film or on a TV show. What I find so fascinating about this character is that this is a man who is very frustrated by and objective about 
his own condition. He's always apologizing for it, you know, uh, feeling embarrassed about it in a really interesting way. And I'm wondering how that affected the way you played it, because you're, it, the character has to show the frustration as well as the throes of it that he's under. Yeah, I mean, um, it's always a, um, the, the thing about, in a way, all characters who are heightened, and I don't even mean just like characters with a disability, like we're talking about Marlon Brando, Stanley Kowalski, or whatever. Stanley Kowalski, I mean, it's not, it's not like Tennessee Williams is realism, right? Right. Blanche Dubois <laughs> and Stanley Kowalski are poetic archetypal characters. Like, no, but no American playwright ever wrote more heightened archetypal characters. What's so exciting in that is you have Vivian Lee and Marlon Brando taking these things and just hauling them down onto the ground mm. so that they become visceral, right? And they take that language that's impossible. It's so hard, that language. You, well, so few people can, can and, and, they, and they make it real, right? And when they make it real, they, they, then it becomes, it's, it's like heightened, but becomes identifiable, right? And you get the Joseph Campbell phenomenon of transparency. You're like, well, even, I, I'm not, you know, I, and that, that's why he had such an impact. A whole generation of actors, a whole generation of people, it was like, it was like suddenly they were they could they could see the the tensions of their own masculinity and sensitivity in him. Mm -hmm. He's this way, but then he's on his knees in front of Stella, you know. And it's like it's all heightened, but what it's doing is is becoming transparently about all of us, right? And I think that that's always the case. And to me, like a character like Lionel with an affliction, we don't all have Tourette's, but Everybody, everybody at some time feels misunderstood, feels like an underdog, feels like um, people underestimate them, feels lonely. And so the idea to me is not, it's, it's like the, the affliction or the condition is actually just a mechanism for turbocharging your identification, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the way to get you to empathize. It's, it's an accelerator on empathy and hopefully Certainly it's true in the book, but, but hopefully in the first five minutes of the film, you're like, I'm on this guy's side. Absolutely. I'm on his side. He's letting me in his head. I'm hearing who is true, his true voice. I'm seeing what he deals with. I'm thinking, there but for the grace of God go I, because if my inner voice came out, I'd be in trouble too. All right. You know what I mean? And, and so you, in a, weird, in a weird way, the anchor is not like the the condition or the expression of the tics or the this or the that. It's like, I think in every character like that, it's much more what is, what's their human struggle that's universal underneath a specific thing, mm. right? And I think that's, you know, my left foot, let's take it like great, performance of, of a person with a really severe physical affliction. But that's not the nature, the, 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 the film is about, what's so amazing about that film and that performance is, it's, it's as much about being Irish as it is about 
having cerebral exactly. palsy. Right, right. Because he's because he's quint and and the three films they made together, you know, in the name of the father, the boxer, and my left foot. All those films are about Irish life. They're all about the condition of being Irish.、Uh. And I think what I love about that performance is not that he amazingly inhabits the physicality of cerebral palsy. It's that he gives you this huge human portrait of a person who, just like you and me, is a son of a bitch, is lusty, is horny, and who. Is fighting his daily battle is that, but he's fighting through it to become who he wants to become, right? Yeah. And and his setbacks are are very intrinsically Irish. The things he he's also fighting through just sort of, it becomes a metaphor for Irish life, really.、Oh. And I think that I think that Lionel, to me, like he, the Tourettes, the condition be unseen. It's. It's woven in the film. Gugu's character is unseen because she's a black woman, and she's a lawyer, but she's a black woman in the fifties, so she's written off. Willem's character is not seen for who he really is. Alec Baldwin's character is not seen for who he really is, and I think the the idea of of invisibility of, or of peop, the dangers and the and the sadness of Not seeing things as they are is is very interesting. That's a very interesting thing.、Mm. Much much more.、Uh, Interesting, honestly, than Tourette's, because if you had to relate to having Tourette's, then the movie would be for like, and、uh, the smallest niche audience <laughs> in the world.、Um, but if, but it, but it, you have to figure out what is it, what it, what is it that's universal underneath it, and then how does the, how does the,、uh, how does the manifestation that's very unique to him and hopefully kind of fascinating and humorous and all these things. Become a device for connecting you, and it you know? does completely.、Yeah. And in this situation, I mean, you adapted Jonathan Lethem's book. This is a labor of love project for you, something you've been wanting to do forever. And what was that experience like? Not only for you directing it, but hearing this amazing cast speak the words that you and Jonathan Lethem, you know, kind of created. It must have been such a thrill. Yeah, it's really great.、Um, in a weird way, I was the. Well, that's not true. I. The book takes place in the '90s, and it's just about the Tourette's guy working for the detective. So me, my character, and Bruce Willis, and the guys. But the whole thing, the rest, resetting it in the '50s, and the rest of it about Robert Moses, basically. That's, that's not. You, in, that's、right. not in the book. Right. So there's sort of、um, it's this mashup of Jonathan's character and my world, my story, my world, and and it was neat for both of us. I think、um, for him, it was like. He, I think we were very true to the spirit of his character, and the underlying, you know, the loss of his only friend being the driver. But then it was like his character walked off into his next、right. not novel, which was he, he said he loved.、Um, for me, I think、um, it's one thing that's fun. I think writing as an as an actor, writing with other actors in mind, and and writing for a huge. Cohort of actors that I've worked with for 25 years, or known, or、um, is that you can you can hear them and you can see them, and so like for me, you know, I would I was actually so hung up on Bobby Cannavale doing the part、mm. that I got very gripped about the you know we were trying to work out his schedule with the Irishman and、um, oh that <laughs> yeah and um, and uh, uh, um. 
But like, I, there's lines in the movie. He says uh, he's getting frustrated with Ethan. He says like, I know it's cold. That's why they call it winter. You know, and um, you know, not everybody can get away with that, but Bobby can. And and there are certain things that Alex says um, that you know, when I hear them come out of his mouth, it's a, it's it's very. You know, uh, it's it's great. It's special. There's there. Some people have an imprint, and you can kind of hear that that um, in it. And when you actually get when you actually get those people that you wrote with it in mind, that's pretty um, pretty special. My favorite stuff. Well, I've, I said this to you last time. The scene of you and Gugu dancing, where she kind of puts her hand on your neck, to, and that calms you down. That's such a beautiful moment. But I also just love the stuff with you and Willem Dafoe because for once you sense these two guys who are kind of misfits and outcasts having this really strong connection with each other. That, that first scene where you guys really are talking is, yeah. is magical. He, we talked a lot, uh, this, <laughs> you wouldn't think this, but Willem and Alec and I, we talked a lot about Star Wars. Oh. Because we talked about these guys being like Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> and Darth and Anakin Skywalker. They, they were Jedis together. Oh. And, and Anakin Skywalker goes to the dark side, but he's strong with the force, right? Yeah. That, that's like who they, that, that was like the archetypal kind of vibe we wanted between them. And okay. I, I think my, it's sort of like Luke, you know, Obi-Wan and Rags teaching Luke how to go at the Death Star, you know? Oh um, my gosh. Now, now you're going to watch it again. I'm seeing um, it in a whole new light. But, um, but let, me, let, me say, let me say this, because uh, I think, again, it's, a, it's uh, this is a, this is a, a, a very particular group and um, I think for me well you know again that whole I remember you know when when uh, Phil Hoffman and and me and people who when New York sort of started theater companies and everything we used to, like Willem was Willem was for a lot of us the ideal of the kind of career you could have as a New York actor sure because he you know, he, he helped found the Worcester Group, one of the great avant-garde companies, stayed very committed to it, always was coming back and doing shows there, um, uh, kept that group alive and vital, and uh, even as he became, you know, the great film actor, straddling all these things, and it was kind of like, that's, that's, that's the model of a, of a great, like, New York actor's career, and, uh, and getting to, I knew him from Wes's films, but, but getting to really dig in with him, in New York, work with him um, uh, was very, very special, and I think it's it's worth saying hmm. along in the vein of that thing of like actors doing what they have to do. It's like we could, I couldn't. Um, we were joking about the Irishman, but we, I made this film for like a tenth of the budget of the Irishman, and because we had to, we couldn't. You could. You, it's very hard to get these kinds of films together, even with Bruce, every, everything, and this this film. This film was co-financed by actors because everybody in it came in and did it for me for scale, like like from Bruce on down. And I, I had to say to everybody, I don't have money on this film. And and that entire cast, Bruce, Alec, Willem, Gugu, Bobby, Cherry Jones, Michael K. Williams, Dallas Roberts, Josh Leslie Pice, Mann. Yeah, Leslie, everybody right on down just said, let's get this made. And and to me, it's not, I'm not it's not, I'm not sharing that like, it does, it's not some kind of extra credit, but I do think it's important for actors to hear that like what actors can get together and leverage 
things. We, we have a, there's a, you know, there, there are ways to hack things when we get together around stuff that, um, that you, you, you can, you can figure it out together. And, and that was, that was very gratifying to me. This, this film essentially being made possible by, by actors being committed to the work. Um, and, and I'm going to be paying it off for a, a long time. Um, I've been like, if, if you see me in Die Hard 8, and it, <laughs> if it seems, if you say to yourself, like, he, yeah, well, any movie, if it's like, that seems beneath him, just, just go, he's paying off Motherless Brooklyn, and it's worth it. Um, oh, by the way, it's worth it, because yeah. you made a fantastic film. For any of those people who have not seen Mother's Brooklyn, either watching or in this room, see it. It's really great. And Edward, I thank you so much for being here with this Pleasure. Crowd. Edward Norton, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.